Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. It's a podcast where we summarize modern medical legal threats to doctors in 15 minutes or less. The goal is to allow you to continue practicing great medicine with peace of mind. And I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical and Dental Justice, an organization dedicated to protecting physicians from frivolous lawsuits, internet libel, unwarranted demands for refunds, and a gazillion other medical legal threats. I'm joined today by my co-host, Mike Sakopoulos, who serves as our organization's general counsel. Glad to have you with us, Mike. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. If you're joining us for the first time, here's a quick rundown on our organization's history and objectives. Medical justice has been protecting physicians from frivolous litigation since 2001. Since inception, we've worked with over 12,000 doctors. We've seen a lot and we've learned a lot. This podcast exists to share this knowledge with you so you can take steps today to protect yourself from the forces that want to prey on you, your practice, and your livelihood. Okay, now let's dive into the topic of today's episode. Dr. Siegel, if you'll do the honors. All right, so we ran a contest called the Most Frivolous Lawsuit Contest. I think we expected, oh, eight or nine submissions, but we were inundated. We had scores of submissions. And I think for the first several podcasts, we're going to um, go over some of the submissions and then finish off with lessons learned. And the first one is um, a fairly complex case and I'm going to read it as it was submitted to us in first person. So the person who submitted it is a, a neurointerventional radiologist. Now, I'm not a neurointerventional radiologist, but as I'm reading it, it'll sound like I am, but just keep that in the back of your mind. So here it goes. I was sued in Pennsylvania in the mid to late 2000s. My late patient had a dural arteriovenous malformation, which I had partially treated. Time had passed, and the slight initial clinical improvement he made stopped, and he worsened. He was living in Birmingham, or I was living in Birmingham, uh, Alabama. I was commuting to Hershey to take care of a few patients until they ultimately hired a permanent interventionalist. It had become too onerous for me to continue making the trip, but I offered to continue to take care of him if he would just fly down to Alabama. No deal. The family, more about that in a bit didn't want to travel and absolutely withheld any support for him to go anywhere but Hershey, Pennsylvania. Please, please come up here and take care of him. Sorry, no can do, but still happy to have him come to Alabama. So the patient decompensates over a period of time, becomes comatose, is taken to Philadelphia where even the most heroic measures fails, and unfortunately he dies. The family sues the uh, neurointerventional radiologist, the neurosurgeon who referred him, and Hershey Medical Center. The interventional radiologist was accused of essentially abandoning the patient. Never mind that I didn't abandon him, just wanted to take care of him in a place better suited and better equipped to deal with the problem. Several times at Hershey, they didn't have something I needed, and instead of buying it and having it on hand the next time I was there, they assumed maybe I'd figure out how to get by without it. I wasn't going to go back to Hershey to endanger patients. Now a little bit about the family, because this is really key. The patient was a middle-aged Vietnamese immigrant who had been a lawyer in Vietnam and actually worked for the U.S. State Department. When the Americans left Vietnam, this 
person, this lawyer did not, and he was sent to a re-education camp. His wife and his son would go to see him about once a month to bring him food and medicine. But then the wife and the son decided to hit the disappear switch and ultimately tried to get to America. They set sail, encountered pirates. This stuff is not made up. It's in the trial transcript, but they eventually got to the U.S. The wife decides to settle in eastern Pennsylvania around Hershey. Eventually, then-future patient completes his re-education, and he also comes to the United States. During the time he's still in the re-education camp, the wife takes a care, and this is quote, takes a careful inventory of her feelings, end quote, and discovers that she no longer loves him. So she sends this poor bastard a letter to the re-education camp, I guess you can't make this stuff up, asking him for a divorce. <laughs> he agrees and it happens. So she remarries in Pennsylvania, the son grows up, goes to University of Michigan, becomes an engineer. Son gets married and is so concerned about his dad that they go to Hershey for premarital stuff like wedding planning, etc. And and during the wedding, but they never see dad. They don't invite dad, dad to the wedding either. And yet now everyone is grief stricken over the death of the patient. So this went to trial. Jury was 12-0 for the defense, both for the interventional radiologist and the neurosurgeon, 10-2 uh, defense for Hershey Medical Center. Plaintiff's lawyer appeals. Two years later, the appeal is denied, um, and then appeals yet again. Um, and after a year, they give the plaintiff's side less than an hour to present the single best argument um, where he feels he will prevail um, if they will grant a new trial. So wait for it. This is the single best argument. The plaintiff, in this case the family, used the Wayback Machine. So this is a website called archive.org to find an ancient Hershey Medical Center webpage that claim that they had 24-7, 365 coverage for neurointerventional services, and since this was plainly wrong, the case ought to be retried. Appeal denied, the interventional uh, radiologist prevailed, and that was a frivolous case that took a number of years to ultimately uh, be disposed of. So this is actually a, a pretty interesting case. Um, I think there are some lessons learned, and the first lesson is that a relative does not always equate to a loved one. So if a potential plaintiff sniffs money, <laughs> they often will find a lawyer. This includes friends and relatives. So a friend or even a relative who likes you may sue you down the road. A long-lost relative may, may emerge to fuel a medical malpractice suit. And, and just to give this color, think of the relatives of uh, a prince, for example. Hey, Mike, um, this is a fairly involved case, but I think the issues are reasonably simple right here. Why don't you uh, weigh in with your two cents? Or so, three cents? Sure. So the first, suit is, the first thought is that this is not a patient who should buy a lottery ticket, right? I mean, talk about horrific luck. Re-education camps, pirates, oh my goodness. All right, <clears throat> but to the, to the issue at hand, look, I think you've, you've addressed the the family not necessarily being loved ones and, and people coming out of the woodwork if they think that there's a potential for economic gain. But let's talk about the website for a moment because I think that this is, is interesting and is something that our listeners can do, um, do a little bit about to protect themselves. Oftentimes I see websites that do not mirror what's going on in the practice, simply that they're outdated. 
And where you often see this is notices of privacy uh, don't uh, match up with the notice of patient privacy given out at the, at the front desk. Uh, Third-party payer information, perhaps you were participating at one time but are no longer participating with the third-party payer, but that hasn't been changed on the website. And so you, this leads to a potential of someone claiming that they have been deceived by uh, your advertisement, a false advertisement. I know these are weak claims, but they are easy to prevent by simply keeping a website uh, relatively up to date. And so that's one of the things that I think is a takeaway from, from, this, uh, from this mess of a, of a case. You know, um, adding to the comment you just made about the website is that even if it doesn't propel a lawsuit, it could certainly be an issue for the Board of Medicine. So for example, um, the type of puffery that is often found on commercial websites, for example, we're the best restaurant in town, or um, the, um, the results from our termite extermination uh, is near perfect. When you start using words like best and perfect, the Board of Medicine has things to say about uh, false and deceptive advertising. Uh, not that they are opposed to actually um, using such language. It's just that you will ultimately have to uh, to um, to back it up. And since nobody really has that type of statistical confirmation that you are the best uh, in the uh, in the country for a particular procedure, I would be wary about using such terms. Now, on the rare event that you do have statistical. Um, information would backs it up. I would actually just stick up the statistics on there. The more you, the more you back it up, the less likely you'll have an issue related to the Board of Medicine. So just, but also of course, the Board of Medicine is not doing random uh, web website checks to see if you conform to their to their um, marketing and advertising um, guidelines. They're complaint driven. They're driven by a patient who is unhappy. They're driven by competitors who will complain or disgruntled employees or ex-spouses. It's just a long list, and anybody with an ax to grind could actually point the board of direction in, onto, uh, onto your website. And then finally, even though that in and of itself may not reach a threshold issue for, for the board coming knocking at your door, it could be used to pile on, meaning that there's already a complaint uh, a patient has a complaint, for example, they don't like what you, the way you charged them or treated them. And um, then the door starts to get opened up because it's a very simple matter to eyeball someone's website. And that turns into, it morphs into a, a complaint related to um, missing the advertising and marketing guidelines. So again, just food for thought. Mike, any, um, any no, other I, thoughts on that? I, I, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying on the, the, the pilot on. And I am sure that a plaintiff's attorney would try to use an outdated website as an indication that the provider generally lacks uh, care and, um, and, and follow through on things, right? I mean, if your website's X number of years out of date, uh, then maybe that's a reflection on how you practice medicine. It's a bit of a stretch, right? But we're talking about uh, meritless suits to begin with, and we've certainly seen that argument be, uh, be used. So, this is a problem that should easily be, be rectified by just keeping a website simple and current. Now, the, the second point related to this is that even when you make an update or edit to your website, the old version of the website, website is still accessible on, as a cache at Google or on archive.org. So people can go in there to see what you said before. The reason I bring this up is not so much that you're always going to have a problem. I would just 
make sure you are aware of it so that you don't give a conflicting story. So as an example, if uh, you're in deposition on the receiving end of a, um, of a malpractice lawsuit and you say X, Y, and Z, which includes, no, we never made this, uh, this allegation um, at all to anyone in the past, if it shows up as exhibit A on an old archived version of a website, it's going to be at best embarrassing and at worst um, potential fuel for the, um, for the plaintiff to prevail. So just be aware of old versions of your website. Um, if, if, if it's possible that any information on that, which is now outdated and has been updated and corrected, um, could be used to, um, to, to create a different narrative of what your practice looked like at some point in the past. Any thoughts on that, Mike? No, I think that that's a, that's a great idea. And to the extent that you're using a, um, a third party to be your, your webmaster, um, make sure that you've, you've got agreements in, in place with them, that things are done properly, that we're not using other people's images, all these kind of things that can come with liability on a website. But, um, but I agree 100% with what you, you've just said. And I think the final point I want to make about this case is that here's a case where the uh, interventional radiologist won 12 zip. I mean, he had a unanimous verdict at the lower court, and typically that would be um, an occasion to break out the champagne and, and rock on. Um, but because of the way our system is designed, uh, the, the losing party has the ability to appeal. Now, it cuts both ways, and typically there's a window of time where the plaintiff has to make a decision um, as to, and in this case, the plaintiff has to decide whether they're going to appeal, and it's usually about 30 days. So we, we tell people, look, this is great news, but it's premature to break out the champagne until the time for appeal is absolutely, absolutely lapsed. And the, the uh, appellate court um, has to take a case on appeal, meaning that if the plaintiff in this particular case appeals, the appellate court does not have the discretion to turn it down. The, the clock starts again and each side has to make uh, their arguments to go forward. Now there's often, at least in most states, yet another layer of appeal which would be the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court typically is considered a discretionary appeal as opposed to a, um, I guess we'll call it a mandatory appeal. There's probably a better legal name for it. It just escapes me right now while we're, while we're on this uh, podcast. Um, what is meant by a discretionary appeal? It means that if you lose at the appellate level, uh, you, can yet, you can appeal yet again, but you're asking pretty please Will you hear this case? And the Supreme Court of that state uh, does not have to take the case. So, um, and again, they'll typically give you an answer reasonably quickly. And the time, the window of time to to make that appeal is quite limited. So, um, you know, it's not over till it's over. And but but then once it's over, that's typically great news. Any final thoughts on this, Mike? No, you're. That was a good good summary of, of appellate law. And I think that many people do not realize how long these cases uh, are litigated. Here we had a case that it really should not have been brought and it went on for many years. And unfortunately, that's just not unique. We see this with some regularity. I think the good news is, is that the, the vast majority of cases um, 
do not work their way up to appellate uh, court or to the Supreme Court. So this is actually good news. But if you're the unlucky person, um, you know, you have to, you absolutely have to wait until, uh, uh, until the end game. So um, I think we're running up against the uh, end of our 15 minute allotment. We thank everyone for joining us today. Mike, thank you so much for your insights. And we will, uh, we will see you next time. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-F-O news at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.